to Sensible Chat. It's scary, boys and girls, when you don't know how to manage your money. <laughs> Taking control of your finances can be quite terrifying, but don't fear, for there are ways to avoid grave situations. Many times our frightful financial choices are a result of rotten financial teaching that lead to ghostly results. But keep your spirits high, because you're not alone in the financial abyss. Brace yourself, because here with her financial horror story is the grim reaper to bad budgeting. Your favorite cool of money, Sensible Bobby. <laughs> many financial horror stories boil down to unfortunate accidents, emergencies, poor planning, or being caught up in a defeatist mindset that tends to perpetuate those types of situations. In my young life, I was a victim of all these scenarios, and I grew up with my own financial horror story. What I didn't realize was how easy it was to fix. All I needed was a different mindset and the awareness that I was perpetuating the unfortunate accidents and emergencies because I was following examples put before me throughout my young impressionable life. I was raised to believe we were poor. Now before I share my story, let me explain my mindset. I was raised to believe that work came first, no matter what. Time off for personal things like doctor's appointments, special family events, sickness? Nope. If you can get out of bed, you go to work. That's your survival. There's no end goal, and the type of job doesn't matter. You just go to work for a paycheck to survive another day. Everything else is put on the back burner. But it never gets done. You're always too tired from working. And never turn down a job. That's more money. And you're always desperate for more cash. I had multiple jobs, was exhausted, but felt like I had to keep working that hard because I needed the money. What to do with the money once it reached me? That part was never discussed. When I got home from work, all I could think about was relaxing or going out with friends. My bills would get thrown in a pile of junk mail to be dealt with later, but of course, later never came. I never knew how much money I had, and I can't tell you how many times I stressed out over whether or not my ATM card would be declined or whether my check would bounce, and they did, on more than one occasion. What was discussed, or at least shown, was that spending tiny amounts of money, $5 here, $20 there, is no big deal. You can't afford a vacation or any other big luxuries, so grab the small ones. The math of those small luxuries adding up fast was never discussed. Also, anyone trying to get you to buy a product or service wants nothing more than to take your money. People are always trying to sell you things you don't need. This includes doctor visits, even if you're ill, going to the dentist unless your teeth are falling out, and having any maintenance done to your car unless it won't run. I was not taught proactivity, but reactivity. That's survival. When we traveled cross-country, we went by car. When we slept, it was on the side of the road, even though my brother and I were very young at the time. Motels were an unnecessary expense that I was told we couldn't afford. If we couldn't go by car, it was the Greyhound bus. Air travel was never brought to the table because, as was the mindset, it was too expensive. 
Never was any thought given to how costs would actually work out when taking food, gas, and any possible car troubles into account. And the car was never checked out before a long trip, because it was running just fine. The verbal and nonverbal message was that you can plan for everything and bad things still happen. So what's the point in planning? It took me years and many huge mistakes to learn the point in planning. I share this information with the hope of helping you find better solutions and to let you know that no matter what's going on in your financial life, you are not alone. Often our bad decisions are a result of other issues going on in our lives. We just take it out on our money. You're not compulsively shopping, eating, or exercising because you need more of it. You're doing it to fill your void. So here's my horror story. My first fear of spending came on my ninth birthday. Since it was a special occasion, my mom took us out to breakfast. A big picture of pancakes with strawberries and whipped cream was painted on the window. I was so excited. Having a love affair with strawberries at the time, the idea of putting them on pancakes was just a decadent delight to my little mind. So of course, I knew exactly what I was going to order. But then I looked at the price on the menu and I was shocked. I felt bad and almost didn't order them because of the price. But my mom encouraged me. It was my special day. So I did. They were delicious. But I couldn't finish. I tried. Believe me, I tried. But I just couldn't do it. I was so upset it left a gaping hole where my birthday excitement should have been. I felt so guilty, so selfish for having wasted the money. It was awful. Truly, I would have felt better if I'd just ordered something less expensive. The experience was so significant, I still remember it to this day, and still struggle to decide between ordering what I truly want versus the cheapest thing on the menu. The next chapter took place at age 12. I was taking a dance class and felt highly privileged to do so. We'd even found the money for tights and a leotard. I felt rich. Then came the splits. While trying to do them, my feet stuck to the hardwood floor. I had a genius thought. The perfect way to get my leg to slide. It worked, sort of. But somewhere on the slide down, I heard a pop. Oddly, I didn't feel it, but I heard it. I remember saying to my teacher, uh, something's wrong here. So I sat down, swung my leg around, and when I saw it, the blinding pain began. My kneecap had popped out of place and was resting far to the side where it didn't belong. Between the pain and the panic, I was a mess. I couldn't even think beyond the pain. But of course my teacher did and called my mom. I could hear the discussion and knew by the end that she was on her way to take me to the emergency room. There would be no ambulance because we couldn't afford it. I was okay with that until she arrived and it hit me that she was going to have to carry me down the flight of stairs that stood between me and the car. Then I was angry. If we just had money, a professional could carry me down the stairs, perhaps on a stretcher. Now, I'm sure I still would have been in pain no matter who carried me, but at that moment, it was all about money in my mind. So now we're at the hospital. They needed to get to my knee, but I was wearing tights, so there were two options. Number one, strip me naked, because the leotard was over my tights. Or two, cut the tights from my ankles up. I was in a tremendous amount of pain, and it would have been horrible to be moved in order to get my clothes off. But at that moment, I was more concerned about the fact that I was going to have to get naked in front of strange men. However, the alternative was destroying the tights. I was beside myself. I remember begging my mom, I know they cost money, but please, please let them cut my tights. 
Man, was I relieved when she started laughing and said, Of course they're going to cut the tights. It wasn't even a second thought in her head, but I certainly battled it out in mine. I guess because I was so conditioned to thinking we were poor, in my mind there were no other options. My mom could throw the word poor around more easily because she was in control of what we had and actually knew what we could and could not afford. I didn't. All I knew was that she said we were poor. By the time I got to high school, I thought I was pretty smart. I'd been poor all my life while watching friends have nice things and not have to worry about money. But the joke was on them because once we got out on our own, they'd have to adjust. I already knew what it was like to be a starving college student. No problem. And as soon as I got out of high school, I started getting all the credit card offers. No way. Not me. I'd already heard other people's stories about maxed out credit cards thanks to clothes and vacations they couldn't afford. I wasn't going to make that mistake. I never even thought to consider if I could trust myself with a credit card or not because I wasn't aware of any positive uses for it. In my mind, credit cards led to overspending and debt, period. So I decided not to get a credit card. Build my credit score? For what? A family member had already told me that credit card scores don't matter unless you're going to buy a house. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be able to buy a house, so who cares about my credit score? Now, it might have been okay if I'd been taught to save money, but the poor mindset doesn't let you believe there's any money to save. Things are always desperate, so I had no savings account and no credit card. Then the hits started coming. When I moved into my first apartment with roommates, none of us were in good financial shape. But together, we could pay the rent and keep the lights on, most of the time. There was a candlelight party or two when the electricity didn't get paid. Incidentally, we each had a bill in our name. Guess which one was in my name? This is just one example of how my poor financial choices not only affected me, but others as well. Unfortunately, I wouldn't make that connection for many years to come. One of my roommates decided to join a gym, but she needed a co-signer to get the membership. I found out later she signed up for a five-year membership. I'm not sure how they talked her into that. I was too busy co-signing without realizing what that meant. And how I qualified as a co-signer with no credit history is beyond me, but I did. Within a year, we had a falling out. She moved, and soon after, I got the call that she stopped paying, and it was time for me to pick up the slack. I tried to fight it, and at that point, learned what it meant to be a co-signer. All I knew before that was that I was helping out a friend whom I trusted. Now I was on the hook for the next four years. I asked them to at least put the membership in my name, but they refused. Eventually, we all moved on from that living situation, but didn't all settle up before leaving. Remember how I mentioned the electric bill was in my name? Yeah, I couldn't cover the entire bill, so I never paid it. In hindsight, it would have saved a lot of heartaches and stress to simply call the electric company and arrange for a payment plan. But I didn't know you could do that, and I was scared, so I ran instead. After that, I couldn't rent an apartment on my own. The only thing worse than having no credit was having bad credit. Then the car chaos began. My grandparents bought my first car, and I was paying them monthly. In one instance, I gave my grandma a check, asking her to cash it as soon as possible. After all, I couldn't balance my checkbook and was overdrawn on many occasions, so I didn't want their check to bounce. One time, when leaving a store, my car wouldn't start. I didn't know what to do or what was wrong with it and didn't have any money to fix it. I opened the door, sat there for a minute, clueless about what to do. 
then slammed the door shut and decided to try starting it just one more time. It started right up. I didn't know why, but I was grateful. Problem solved. I did nothing further about it because it wasn't a problem for a while after that. Then it happened again, so I tried what worked the last time, and it worked again. This happened on several occasions, but got to the point where sometimes I had to slam all the doors before it would start. Instead of trying to figure out what was wrong, I just laughingly told people that my car had an attitude problem. Scott and I were friends by this time, and when I told him about it, he suggested that it was probably a bad connection to the battery. It was. Once it was fixed, of course, the problem was truly solved. On another occasion, I got a seatbelt ticket that was promptly added to the pile of junk mail with my bills, and never got paid. Consequently, they sent follow-ups, which were ignored. It was only 20 bucks when I first got the ticket. I'll deal with it later. In this case, later finally came, in the form of a bench warrant and a $600 fine. I went to court and pleaded it down to $400, all for a $20 seatbelt ticket that I neglected. My second car was a Yugo, which I bought for 700 bucks. My friends never let me forget why it was so cheap, telling me how people only used Yugos for potted plants these days. Whatever, it ran and I had to go to work, so I didn't care. What I eventually did care about was the fact that the window would not roll all the way up once it had been rolled down, unless you really struggled with it. One day I left for work with it rolled down a bit. Once I got on the freeway, it started raining. I couldn't roll it up, and I couldn't take the time to pull over and force it up, because I have such a stellar work ethic, I can't be late. So I just kept driving, getting nice and wet. I didn't care, I'd been through worse. But then, I noticed the thermostat was rising very quickly. Though I'd heard about cars overheating, I'd never paid attention as to why. And because it was raining and cold outside, I couldn't imagine that it could happen now. But it did, and finally I had to pull over. All I remember is a horrible smell, and $200 later, I had a new radiator and a bit of knowledge about it. I learned that a bottle of coolant was much cheaper than a new radiator. The Yugo didn't last long, because a co-worker soon borrowed and totaled it. Now what was I going to do? I was such a sad sack, even my boss could see it. He actually created a way for me to earn a big commission so I could put a down payment on a car. What a guy. Scott went with me to buy that car. I knew nothing. It was the first time I'd ever financed a car, and I was scared. You didn't finance cars in my family. You bought them outright from private parties, cheap as you could find, and hope for the best. Now I was locked into a car payment. But the car actually wasn't a beater. I'd never had a car I could be proud to drive, so I was excited, too. But I still had lessons to learn. I was late for work one day, and there was a fatal accident on the freeway, making it a parking lot. But many cars were crossing the double yellow lines into the carpool lane, and it was moving. All I could think was, I cannot be late for work. So I followed suit. I heard tires screeching, then impact. When he hit me, I lost control and hit the car in the lane next to me. So much for getting to work on time. Sad but true, that was my first thought. Even though my trunk would not close, somehow I made it to work, where someone helped me secure it with bungee cords. Later that day, I got a call from the lady I hit. Lucky for me, she had gone straight to taking care of her car. When she contacted my insurance company, they told her my premium was due that day. Of course, I was not aware of this, and if she hadn't called, I wouldn't have taken care of it. My insurance would have lapsed, and I would not have been covered for that accident. 
So, one of my coworkers took pity on me and drove me to the insurance office so I could make the payment. That's when I found out I didn't have as much coverage as I thought. Sure, I had liability. The lady I hit would be taken care of. But I was SOL. See, my grandfather had set up my insurance, and I trusted it was everything I needed. But for some reason, he set it up so that I was covered if the car had caught on fire, but not for collision. I didn't have money or a credit card to fix the car, but I still owed money on it. But I still needed to do something because it was very damaged and not completely legal to drive, especially since the lights on the back were gone. Scott's mechanic Mickey Mouse fixed that made it legal. It wasn't pretty, but it was legal. Barely. I got pulled over. A lot. That car was an eyesore, and for some reason, police would ask if the car was stolen. Who would steal that piece of crap? Still, it ran, and I continued to go to work. Until the day a friend offered to run an errand for me. It required him to drive about 65 miles from where we lived, so he borrowed my car. Being a friend of Scott's, too, they went together. Soon they called to say the engine had thrown a rod, and they were stranded. My thoughts immediately went back to the day I was informed my car needed oil. I didn't have any money or a credit card, so I blew it off. To me, this was one of those cases where one of those evil salespeople was trying to sell me something I didn't need. I was wrong. And now, not only was my car completely destroyed, but once again, I'd put friends in a potentially dangerous situation because of my lack of proactivity. And I still owed money on it. Luckily, it didn't cause an accident, but now they had to deal with my problem in order to get home. Thankfully, Scott had AAA and was able to get the car towed. I didn't have AAA. What is that? I didn't have a credit card to pay for a towing service, and I certainly had no money to get my one-ton paperweight home. I had many hard lessons with this car, but also two important ones. Number one, regular maintenance is important. And number two, the proper insurance is vital. Clearly, by the time he married me, Scott knew I was a financial mess, and if he hadn't known then, he would have found out real quick. We received several thousand dollars in monetary gifts when we got married. We were so excited about the little nest egg that would get us started. The IRS had different plans. As it turned out, I had neglected to pay my taxes for the last few years, and, as luck would have it, I owed quite a bit. The good news was that the nest egg was enough to cover it. We paid it all at once and got the IRS off our backs right away. But it was a horrible way to start a new life with my husband. All that money came from his family, and it went to pay off mistakes I made before we said I do. That was it. He took control of the finances, and I was happy to let him do it. I was clueless. But he started teaching me right away, and it didn't take long before I could see how easy it was and how much better off I would have been long ago if only I'd known. He had the simplest way of keeping track of bills. When they came in the mail, they were opened and marked with the due date, then placed in order of the due date on one corner of the dresser. Always. No exceptions. When paychecks came in, the first thing we did was gather all the bills due between then and our next paycheck and pay them. He also taught me how to balance the checkbook. It consisted of nothing more than keeping all his receipts and writing them in the register, one by one, and subtracting from the total. Then he would call the bank, this was 1999, before internet banking, and use the automated system to check the expenses they had on record against the ones in our checkbook. He checked off each one he heard. This way he didn't miss anything, and he knew exactly what he had left. 
For the first time in my life, I could breathe. No more worrying about whether or not a check would bounce or my ATM card would be declined. No more worrying about whether the car would run and what we would do if something happened. Not only was he meticulous about maintenance, but he had a credit card that was only used for emergencies. Eventually, after Scott had surgery and couldn't use his hand, I took on responsibility for the finances and was actually quite capable of handling them. This was the end of my financial horror story, but only the beginning of my journey toward financial freedom. I was 19 when I began working at Money Radio and bored by the financial lingo that constantly surrounded me. Investing was for rich people, so I tuned it out. Through the years, I was sucked back into financial radio many times, but none of it ever interested me, and again, I thought the strategies and philosophies could only apply to the rich, so I kept tuning it out. But then about five years ago, something clicked. I'd gone back to work after our business failed, and we were paying off a lot of debt from the experience. It seemed like it would never end, and I was frustrated. I was scheduling authors for radio interviews all the time, and their books were all around me. So one day, I started reading, and a light bulb went off. It was called The 60-Minute Money Workout by Ellie Kay. She was talking about a faster way to pay off debt, and it was just a matter of redoing the math. I remember thinking, no way could it be that easy. Following her steps on paper, I did the math for our situation, and it worked. I was so excited, I told Scott I wanted to try it, and he was all for it. We followed it to a T, and wouldn't you know... It not only worked on paper, it truly worked for us. We paid off our debt much faster than I ever thought possible. Once I saw the plan in action, I couldn't get enough. I started thinking, what else don't we know? I was reading all the books I could find and actually listening to the experts and soaking it all in. I learned the basics, then the philosophies from personal finance experts. Sometimes they were conflicting, and for a while I was confused. But as I continued to try different things and follow different philosophies, I found out what worked for me and what didn't, and why different people have different philosophies. And once our debt was pretty much knocked out, I began to focus on how to stay out of debt for life and build for the future. My mindset completely changed, and it all seemed possible. I could see a way to plan for anything I needed and wanted, and how to be as prepared as possible for any mishaps along the way. True, you can plan for everything and something will still go wrong. But that planning prepares you for anything that goes wrong. Maybe not completely in some cases, but it can soften the blow and give you resources to bounce back. For me, planning keeps the stress away. Now I can roll with the punches instead of being knocked down by them. It was such an exciting change for me. I wanted to share it with anyone who would listen. It's not a subject everyone likes to talk about, but I've taken every opportunity to help family and friends create a clear picture of their finances and a plan to take them where they want to go. This is so powerful because once you see it on paper, you realize that it's really just about math and discipline. It is possible. If you get nothing else out of the website or these podcasts, I hope that's what you take away. It is possible. There is hope. Never say never. I'm living proof, and I know what it's like to feel hopeless and desperate. That's why I'm so compelled to share what I've learned with as many people as I can, because I've been so much happier since I got rid of those feelings, and I don't ever want anyone to feel the way I did. I know there are many who do.
Hang in there. Don't give up and stay positive toward your finances. It will change. I'm always here and anxious to help you get a handle on your financial life. You can reach me at sensiblechat at gmail.com. Until we get together again, keep spending and saving the sensible way. That does it for this edition of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. If you need help creating a spending plan, write to her at sensiblechat at gmail.com for a free evaluation. She'd love to know what you're thinking, so drop her a line at sensiblechat at gmail.com. That's sensiblechat at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or success stories. Be sure to catch our next episode at sensiblechat.com. That's sensiblechat.com.